Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. Many people read Akedat Yitzchak, The Binding of Isaac, through a moral or theological lens. How could Avram consider sacrificing his son? Why would God ask him to do so? Today, we're listening to From Yishmael to Yitzchak, The Lost Sons of Avraham, with Dina Weiss. She asks not whether the Akedah is right or wrong, but rather how Avraham dealt with this challenge on a human, emotional level. Let's listen in. What we are going to be talking about is the Akedah, the story of the binding of Isaac, um, which I do not think um, that in a, you know, Jewishly involved audience such as yourself, I need to tell you right, that there is this thing that happened in the Bible um, called the binding of Isaac. However, I'm going to make two claims um, that I think are a little bit different from our standard reading of the story of Akedah Yitzchak. The first claim that I'm going to make, I'm going to substantiate. Um, So I feel pretty good about it. The second claim I'm going to make is maybe a little bit more of a interpretative uh, midrashic, if you will, um, choice on my part. And you could quibble with that claim. Okay, so the first claim I'm making, I think is very textually grounded. And therefore, I do not think it can actually um, be too quibbled with. Um, but the second claim that I'm going to make is a little bit more uh, creative, but hopefully also Uh, substantiated and supported in the text. So the first claim that I am making is that the proper way to understand the the story of the Akedah of Yitzchak is to read it in light of the story that happens right before. Okay, the Akedah is chapter 22, and the story that I'm talking about is chapter 21 of Breshit, and that is the story of the eviction of Yishmael. We are going to go through fairly quickly um, a a brief comparison between these two stories on the assumption that you are pretty familiar with the Akedah, somewhat familiar with the basic story of the eviction of Ishmael. And I'm just going to highlight for you why I think these stories are to be read in light of each other. And then I'm going to make my second claim, which is that when you read these stories in light of each other, the question that we ask about Akedat Yitzchak changes. Many of us have been in classes or have been in conversations with ourselves or with Chavrudas about the story of God asking Avraham to sacrifice his son. It's not the kind of story that you read and don't notice, okay? Um, And often the frame for thinking about this story is a kind of moral frame or a kind of theological frame, right? The moral frame is how could Avram have done this, right? And often when we're in that frame of mind, the story we like to compare the Akedah to is the story of Avraham protesting when God says that he's going to destroy Sodom and Amorah, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? There, Avraham is fighting and he's arguing and he's negotiating. And then in the Akedah, there is no resistance and no negotiation, okay? So the moral frame, right, likes to read 
um, the story of Yakedah in light of the story of um, God telling Abraham about what's going to happen in Sodom, right? And the theological reading is how could God have asked Abraham to do this, you know, really heinous, I'm willing to go, to go on record um, with that, uh, you know, heinous, extremely, you know, unfathomably difficult thing. Um, and the way to, the, the way to, I think, properly understand that is to read the story of Yakedah in light of other examples in the Torah where God makes a similar demand. Um, and Rav Eitan, Rav Ethan Tucker, has a whole very you know, compelling, very beautiful shiur reading the Akedah through that lens. I didn't check, but I'm like, let's say 97% sure that it's somewhere on the Hadar website. And if that is the frame that you are looking for, I welcome you to, um, to go in that direction. The question that, and the lens that we are going to be looking at this story and really these stories through is the emotional lens. Why? Okay, maybe Abraham felt that he needed to submit to God's demands. I get that. God is God, okay? You could imagine a world where Abraham would say, whatever God says, I will do. But why don't we have any indication that Abraham was displeased that Abraham was upset, that Abraham was sad. Why don't we have any emotional indication of Abraham's state? Now, those of you who are, you know, Torah readers are going to say, well, actually the Torah generally is quite thin when it comes to language that shows us somebody's emotional disposition. That is true. But when we read the story of the eviction of Ishmael, we're going to see that there the Torah is not sparing with emotional details. And so that makes the contrast in our story, in the story of Akedat Yitzchak, very, very strong. That here, there is no emotional language. Whereas in Gerush Ishmael, the story of the eviction of Ishmael, which I am going to prove to you, um, is in fact a parallel story. There is a lot of emotional language. Okay. Now we're going to have to do some fancy footwork. Okay, the first text is Breshi Perak Tetvav, Breshi chapter 15, which just sets up the whole story. I'm not even going to read it inside, but the most important words that you want to see are Achar Hadzvarim Ha'ela, after these things, after these events. And then God brings Abraham out to, you know, Show him, don't worry, even though you don't have any children now, you are going to have children. And Eliezer, your trusted servant, is not going to be the one who is going to um, inherit you. Okay, that's chapter 15. That's a while ago. But that's that's flickering in the background. Because while it's always a tragedy and it's always difficult right, for someone to send away a son, it's particularly difficult to send away a son when you only have one son and you're very concerned about your inheritance and your legacy. Okay. And that's where Abraham is not once, but twice, right? When he sends out Ishmael, right? At that point, Ishmael is his son, right? The one who he's kind of invested in. And then God says, Oh, can you also get rid of Yitzchak? Okay. So Abraham right, is experiencing the commandment to get rid of Ishmael. I'm sorry to use that language, but I think it's fairly accurate. 
and the commandment to sacrifice Yitzchak, in his in his mind, the backdrop is that he's very insecure about questions of succession. Okay, so it's not only the tragedies in and of themselves, and I with you. They're tragic in and of themselves, but the Torah already sets them up to say that for Abraham, they are particularly acutely tragic. Chapter 21 is the chapter of the eviction of Ishmael, and chapter 22 is the story of the eviction of Yitzchak. Okay, in verse 3, Pasuk Gimel, in in chapter 22, when Abraham gets ready to sacrifice his son. Vayashkem Abraham Baboker. Abraham wakes up early in the morning and he saddles his donkey. Okay, and he takes his his two lads, let's say, his son, and he takes the the wood and he goes to the place that God commanded. Okay, now if you look at verse fourteen in chapter twenty-one, pasuk Yudalit in the blue. Vayashkem Avraham Baboker. Avram gets up early in the morning. Huh, very similar. Okay. And he also, where right, he takes the supplies. In this case, the supplies are lechem bechamat maim, bread and a flask of water. Um, and he puts it on Hagar's shoulder. Okay. And the child. Okay. So you can actually see that there is this very nice similarity. This is a term nice in the literary sense, not in the moral sense of Avram waking up early in the morning. And not only is he, you know, interacting with the child who is, who is going to be lost, but there's this, there's this image of the placing on the shoulder, right? Um, the carrying of the supplies. In the Akedah, we're looking at Pasuk Yud Aleph, verse 11. We have an angel calling out to Avraham from the heavens and telling Avraham to stop, right? And then Avraham sees the ram and he decides to sacrifice the ram instead, okay? Verse Yud Aleph, verse 11, that is the, the angel coming in to stop. And lo and behold, in chapter 21, we also have an angel in verse 17 in Pasuk Yud Zayin, Vayikra Malach Elohim El Hagar Men Hashemayim. The angel calls out to Hagar from the heaven and says, what is going on, Hagar? Do not worry. Your child is not going to die. Okay. It's the exact same scene. Everybody's getting all packed up. Avram wakes up early in the morning. It's the angel who is stepping in and is saying, hey, you actually don't have to sacrifice your child. Hey, your child is actually not going to die of thirst and starvation, everything is going to be okay. Um, In verse 21, in chapter 21, and in verse 23, in chapter 22, sorry that that's confusing, right? In both of them, the story ends with that there's a wife being taken for each child. Hagar takes a wife for Yishmael, and right in, in verse 23, in the Akedah story, we have the story that Rivka is born, which, you know, isn't explicitly, you know, Yitzchak getting married, but any educated reader of the text sees Rivka's name and starts, dun, 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 right, knows that there is a wedding um, on the way, even though it's not stated explicitly. But what I want to draw your attention to is chapter 21, okay? We're going to start with verse 11, perhaps the most damning piece of information. 
Vayira hadavar meod be'ene Avraham alodot beno. This matter was very bad in Avraham's eyes on account of his son. Avraham is upset. And the Torah gives us a complete verse that says explicitly and unequivocally, Avraham is upset. And God says to Avraham, Pasuk Yudbet, verse 12, do not be upset. Okay? It's very, very clear. Very clear departure. Very clear contrast. In chapter 21, when Avraham is told, kick out your son. Avraham says, I don't want to. Or maybe I will. But this is very upsetting. Okay, and it's not just Abraham's emotional state that we have access to in the story of the eviction of Ishmael. So verse 16, Pasuk Tetzayin, um, they're at a point where they're running out of provisions. And Hagar walks and she sits further away. And why does she sit far away? Ki amra, because she said, Al I do not want to see this child die. So she sits far away. She raises her voice and she cries. And And God hears the voice of the child, right? Which implies that not only is Hagar crying, but also Yishmael is crying, because if Yishmael wasn't crying, then what is the voice that God hears? Okay, so chapter 21 is showing us three people that have very strong emotional reactions. And I will say, in my opinion, quite appropriate emotional reactions. Abraham is upset that he is being told to cast out his son. God says, don't be upset. Hagar is distraught when she sees that her son might die of a famine, might die of, of dehydration, and she distances herself because she can't bear to watch it, and she cries. And you know who else cries? Ishmael cries. Okay, this is very emotional language. Everybody is appropriately upset. Now we're going to look at the way that the Torah describes Avraham and Yitzchak's emotional state. I'm in verse 6 and again in verse 8. They both walked together. Walking is not an emotional verb. There is no, this is upsetting. There is no, I can't bear to watch this. There is no crying. There is simply stoic obedience. It is very, very, very stark. Even without the contrast, this level of obedience. But when we see it in comparison to what is happening on the other side, in the earlier version of the story with Yishmael, Right? Hagar distances herself from Ishmael because she can't handle it emotionally. Whether that was the right choice for her to make is a separate question. Right? But it's clear that she is emotionally fragile. She is distraught. She can't be near it. She can't watch her son suffer. 
Abraham and Yitzchak holding hands, walking together, placid, completely placid. I am going to share with you one of my basic philosophies when it comes to studying Torah. Rashi is always right. Okay, sometimes someone else is right in addition to Rashi. But Rashi is always right. Okay, and it helps that Rashi is going to support what we have just noticed. Okay, Rashi says, after these things. Okay, right at the beginning of the story of the Akedah, we have this note that it's after these things. Okay, and there are those that say, after the words of Yishmael, who was lording it over Yitzchak, that he was circumcised at 13 years and he didn't protest. Okay. So it's clear, according to Rashi, that the Akedah is a response to Gerush Ishmael to the eviction of Ishmael. Okay. Um, but maybe the most important um, element of Rashi's analysis is his reading of they both walk together. Rashi said they really were both walking together. Abraham, who knew that he was going to slaughter his son, was walking with as much eagerness and happiness, Ratzon and Simcha, as Yitzchak, who didn't sense what was happening. Okay? Rashi here is saying two things. One is, Abraham and Yitzchak are in the same emotional state. That's what Vayachush Nehem Yachtav means. And Abraham and Yitzchak were both in a kind of ignorantly blissful state, right? In that Abraham was no more distraught than Yitzchak, who had no idea what was going on, okay? It's... um. Rashi uses sort of positive emotional language of ratzon and simcha, of, you know, of eagerness and happiness. But I think at minimum, right, what Rashi is showing is that Abraham is going in the emotional state of someone who has no idea what is about to happen. And is just happy to be going on a camping trip with dad. Okay, that is Right, Rashi noticing that they both walk together, right, is not a description of what happens. It's a description of an emotional state. And more accurately, it's a description of a lack of an emotional state. Neither of them are upset. Neither of them are at all reacting to what is actually going on. And what, what Rashi does is he contrasts the emotional state of Avraham, not to the emotional state of Hagar, because that's not really his um, religious orientation, but to the emotional state of Sarah. Okay, so we're going to contrast Avraham's reaction to Sarah's reaction. Vayavo Avraham mi Be'er Sheva. Avraham comes from Be'er Sheva. I'll explain later why this is important. To eulogize Sarah and to cry over her. The death of Sarah is recorded next to the binding of Yitzchak because it is through the news of the Yakedah 
that her son was summoned to be slaughtered and almost was slaughtered, her soul departed from her and she died. Okay. Sarah, I do not think we could say, is underreacting to the bad news. She's either appropriately reacting or she's overreacting. Okay, but the contrast here is so stark. Abraham, noony, noony, noom. I'm just going along in my day as if nothing has happened. Sarah, she hears about it. She's not even directly involved. And she's so distraught that she dies. Okay. Um, so I hope that I've made my case pretty, uh, pretty clearly. What I am arguing, just in case I was being too subtle, um, is that the stories of the eviction of Ishmael and the, um, and the binding and sacrifice of Isaac are parallel. Right? You are supposed to read them next to each other. They come one chapter after another. The language between the two stories is very, very similar, not to mention the narrative right, is very, very similar. But, and here's the part where maybe I'm reading in a particular way that is uh, a choice that I'm making. I think that what we're supposed to get out of this comparison is to notice that Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael are distraught in chapter 21. And Abraham and Yitzchak are placid, blank, almost emotionless in chapter 22. Okay, And I think that Rashi supports me right, in his analysis of the way Abraham and Yitzchak were feeling. And he's contrasting it with the way that Sarah was feeling. Sarah was not feeling. Huh, that's interesting that my son almost died. Huh, what interesting news. She died. Okay. She was not messing around emotionally. She was not checked out emotionally. She was tuned in to exactly how horrifying and terrifying this was. So checked in, so emotionally present that unfortunately she lost her life. Okay. Um, so what we are going to do is we are going to look at two chapters of Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, which is a late Midrash um, and also an unfinished Midrash, right? So some parts of it are earlier, some parts of it are later. It also has like a number of different structures that are kind of layered on top of one another. Um, and it's important for you to know that at least this part of Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer is so late that it was composed after the advent of Islam. Now I tell you this for two reasons. The first is that we are going to see a reference to Islam, which is going to be exciting, right? And the second is that often, right, Ishmael, because of his connection to, um, you know, Islamic theology is, you know, particularly vilified in rabbinic sources beyond where, you know, really makes sense, 
right? Similarly, Esav is vilified in rabbinic sources because Esav represents Christianity and the and these sources go out of their way to vilify Esav. Why am I telling you this? Because Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer is totally par for the course on this. It is an anti-Islamic text at its core. I mean, that's not its, that's not its uh, you know, mission, but that is, you know, the people who are composing much of the text are living under, you know, subjugation um, at Islamic hands. So they are not kind of pro, you know, let the children of Hagar and Sarah sing together and hold hands. That's not where they're at. That's not their political reality. And nevertheless, they are completely tuned in, or this Midrash is completely tuned in to the weirdness of Abraham seems upset at the eviction of Ishmael and doesn't seem upset at the um, possible um, murder of Yitzchak. And we are going to see that they imagine and really go into Abraham's emotional state when it comes to comes to Ishmael. And also, I think critically, fill in a little bit more of the story. Okay. I don't want to spoil too much. I want us to go into the text. The last thing I'll say before we go right into it is that these two chapters, chapter 30, which talks about the eviction of Ishmael, and chapter 31, which talks about the Akedah um, Yitzchak are part of this kind of overlapping section of Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer where there's more than one kind of um, literary framing. So one of the literary frames that's happening is that Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer is going through one by one the 10 tests of Abraham. We see this coming up in Pirkei Avot and other sources. There's a notion that Abraham is tested 10 times and the 10th test was the Akedah. Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer is going to show us that the ninth test was the eviction of Ishmael. So that's that's one kind of uh, textual frame that Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer is working on here. And at the same time, it is also working through the 18 blessings of the Shmona Israel of the Amidah, of the silent prayers, okay? So we're going to see at the end of chapter 31, there's going to be some reference to uh, the Amidah, and we're going to be confused about where that comes from. But if you read the whole Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer through, you'll see that it's actually part of a series of going through the blessings of the Shmona Esrei, of this prayer, okay? Can't spend any more time on background, even though it's a fascinating text and I could talk about the background also for a while. But here we go. The ninth test, right? It's the ninth test that Abraham has to go through. Ishmael was born with a bow and he hunted with a bow. As it says, God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and he became an expert with the bow. And he took the bow and the arrows and he was shooting at the birds. And he saw Yitzchak sitting alone and he shot an arrow to kill him. Okay, this is not a pro Yishmael text, right? Here we have Yishmael being painted as an attempted murderer. Sarah saw this and she told Abraham, 
she said to him, this and this is what Yishmael is doing to Yitzchak. Get up and write that everything that the Holy Blessed One has promised to you and to your children belongs to Yitzchak because the son of the maid, right, that is Yishmael, will not inherit with my son, with Yitzchak. As it says, she said to Avraham, evict this maid and her son because this maid son will not inherit with my son, with Yitzchak. Okay, what's interesting here is that Midrash feels the need to provide a justification. Yishmael had to do something wrong in order to receive this terrible punishment of being evicted. So they say, well, based on what we know that he was an archer, let's assume that he was practicing his archery skills on human targets, a very dangerous um, and possibly eviction worthy uh, pastime. Okay, I don't want to focus on this. We got to get into the really fascinating section of this text. Yehuda ben Tema says, Sarah said to Abraham, write a writ of divorce for the maid and send this maid away from me and from my son Yitzchak, both in this world and the world to come. And here we go. And of all of the bad things that happened to Abraham, this was the worst in his eyes by far. As it says, the matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. Right? Rabbi Yehuda ben Tima does not mince words. He says there are 10 tests, including the Akedah, wink, wink. This was the worst. Abraham had a difficult life. This was the worst thing that ever happened to him emotionally. And we know that because the Torah says so. Okay, so Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer is choosing to highlight what I chose to highlight, right? And that is the um, terrible emotional distress that Avraham is, is feeling. And for those of you who are wondering which came first, did I notice the contrast between the two texts or did I see Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer and then, you know, work more in the contrast? The answer to this question is I don't know. Because I learned Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer in its entirety a very, very long time ago. And I had this insight about Yishmael and Yitzchak very recently. So was it buried subconsciously and then it came back up? Maybe. Or is it a happy coincidence? Nobody knows. Okay. Um, but that's also like a very midrashic reality, right? We're not really sure which came first, the textual analysis or the insight. Hard to tell. Okay. We're continuing in the text. Rabbi Yehuda says, I'm just going to highlight where I am. For those of you who are following along with me, here we go. The Holy Blessed One revealed himself to Avraham. He said to him, Avraham, don't you know that Sarah has been fit for you as your wife from the time she was in your mother's womb? And she is your partner and the wife of your covenant. Sarah is never called your maid, only your wife. And Hagar is never called your wife, only your maid. Why is the Midrash going into this? This is an anti-Islamic polemic. Anything that Sarah has said to you, she speaks the truth. Don't be distressed. Here we go. Abraham gets up early and he wrote the writ of divorce and he sent her, that is Hagar, and her son away from him and away from his son Yitzchak, both in this world and in the world to come. As it says, Vayashkeim Avraham Aboker. Avraham rose early in the morning and he took all of these provisions, and he sent her away with a writ of divorce. Okay, for those of you who are textually interested, right, the language of lishloach, to send, 
is a verb that is used in the context of divorce. And that's why um, the Midrash is harping on this language. Um, and he took a garment and he tied it around her waist so that it would drag behind her and it would be known that she is a maid. Okay, Abraham is really sending her out. And then we have not only that, but Abraham stood up to see his son Ishmael and to see the path that they walked on. Okay, so there's this contrast here that Avraham is choosing to send Hagar out in a way that is very demeaning. But Avraham does not feel any negative feelings towards his own son. And the Midrash imagines that Avraham is wistfully watching Ishmael walk away. And he wants to see where they go. Okay. We're going to skip the next uh, paragraph for the sake of time. We're going to go to the underlying section after three years. After three years, Abraham went to see his son Ishmael. What? This is not in the Torah, okay? But here we have Abraham's enduring emotional connection with his son. Abraham watched to see where he went. And then after three years passed, Abraham can't stand it anymore. And he goes to see Ishmael. But what about Sarah? Right? Sarah does not want Abraham to have a relationship with Ishmael. So what happens? He promised Sarah that he would not descend from the camel in the place where Ishmael was residing. Right? He negotiates with Sarah and he says, I, I need to see my son. I have this emotional need. But I will not get off the camel. I'm going to maintain my distance. And he got there at midday and he found the wife of Ishmael there. He said to her, where is Ishmael? She said to him, he and his mother went to get fruit and dates from the wilderness. He said to her, give me some bread and water because my soul is weary from the way in the desert. Right? I'm so tired from my walk. She said to him, there is no bread and there is no water. He said to her, when Ishmael comes, tell him these things and say to him, an older man, right? Anonymous, anonymous old guy came from the land of Canaan. Okay, that's the hint. And said to swap out the threshold of your house since she is not good for you. Okay, and this is code language. For Abraham telling Ishmael, I checked on your wife, she's bad news. And when Ishmael came from the desert, she told him these things. And the son of a wise man is already half a wise man, right? Ishmael, maybe he's not great on his own, but he is Abraham's child. And he got some of the Yiddish cup, right, from his father. And Ishmael understood. And his mother went and got him a wife from her father's house. And her name was Fatima. Okay, or I'm going to go back to the Fatima piece in a second. But just so you could see what the Midrash is doing here. Avraham is so upset about what happens. He never gives up on Yishmael. He goes to journey to Yishmael's house to visit him. And he and he fathers him. Right. He tells his wife to give Ishmael a message so that Ishmael will learn from Avraham that Avraham is not pleased with this shidduch. Avraham is not happy with this match. And he should get rid of her and get a new wife. And he does. And the wife that he gets is Fatima. We're going to come back to Fatima in a second. 
Um, and then it happens again. After another three years, Avraham went to see his son Ishmael. Okay, Avraham goes back. And we have the same story. He swears to Sarah that he's not going to get off the camel. He goes there. Ishmael's not home. He asks the wife for food. And this time, um, she brought out bread and water. I'm highlighting. And she gave it to him. Okay. What does this story remind you of? This story might remind you of Eliezer testing Rivka to see if, she, or the, the, the slave, let's not say Eliezer because that's a Midrash, Abraham's servant testing Rivka to see if she is kind enough for, Yish, for Yitzchak. He tests her by saying, can I have some water? And when Rivka brings the water, it is known that she is an appropriate wife for Yitzchak. So here we have a parallel that Avraham is doing this kind of testing of the wife for Yishmael, and he's happy with the second wife that he, that he has because she does go out and bring out bread and water to give it to him. Okay. We're not going to go through the rest of this section of the Midrash because we need to get to the next chapter, but I just want to say one more thing about Fatima. Fatima is, I hope where some of you, this is, you know, somewhat familiar, right, is an Islamic name. But you probably don't know exactly who Fatima is. Fatima is the daughter of Muhammad. Okay, so they didn't just choose a kind of Islamic-y sounding name. She marries Ishmael. This person that is the name Fatima marries Ishmael. And I don't know. This might be a midrash on a midrash on a midrash. But according to the Shia tradition of, um, of Muhammad's biography, Fatima is his only surviving daughter. Okay? So choosing, the, choosing Fatima already kind of sets us up to this, um, kind of continues this imagery of a one remaining child. Yishmael marries the woman who represents one last remaining child. Okay. God is sending Avraham to see, is he going to do what God asks? And Ishmael went out of the wilderness to see his father, Avraham. Okay. In the, in the telling of Akedat Yitzchak, um, according to Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer, Ishmael is there. Avraham and Yitzchak, sorry, Avraham and Ishmael have this kind of tenuous, but not totally broken relationship. And that forces us right, to read this story even more as a contrast between these two sons, these two types of estrangement between Abraham and Ishmael and Abraham and Yitzchak. Um, now we're at Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda says, again, same Rabbi Yehuda. We had Rabbi Yehuda in the previous chapter. We have Rabbi Yehuda here. This Midrash is quoted in a number of places, including Rashi, who, as I said before, is always right. And we have a a technique where Rabbi Yehuda is going to chop up a verse into its constituent pieces, right? The full verses, Abraham, take your son, your only son that you love, Yitzchak. Why doesn't God just say, take Yitzchak? One way of understanding this is that God is kind of turning the knife and like, reminding Avraham of how hard it is, your only son, your the one that you love. But Rabbi Yehuda 
chooses to read this as a kind of negotiation. Um, wink, wink, not unlike Abraham's negotiation at Sodom. Okay. On that night, the Holy Blessed One revealed himself to him, that is to Abraham, I'm highlighting where I am, and said to him, Abraham, please take your son. And Abraham had compassion on Yitzchak, so he said before him, that is before God, master of all worlds, so which child are you referring? The one who is uncircumcised or the one who is circumcised? He said to him, your only son. And then Avram said to him, this one is the only one of his mother and this one is the only one of his mother. What are you talking about? I have two only sons. He said to him that you love. He says back to God, I love both of them. He said to him, Yitzchak. Okay, my whole life, I read this Midrash in a particular way. I read this Midrash as Abraham doesn't want to sacrifice Yitzchak. He wants to sacrifice Ishmael. He wants to throw Ishmael under the bus. Now, the problem with that reading is that Ishmael's already gone. By the time Hashem tells Avraham to sacrifice his son. Okay, so if you read this imagined conversation with the awareness that Avraham doesn't really have two sons that he could take. Avraham actually only has Yitzchak. I would like to offer and this is really a midrash and a midrash and a midrash. I would like to offer an alternate reading of what is happening in this midrash. When God says, Kach na et bincha, please take your son. Is it obvious that taking the son means take him to sacrifice? It's not obvious, right? And in fact, if I were Avraham, and I chased out my son. And then God said to me, take your son. I would think God wants me to bring back Ishmael from the desert. I'm going to get my son back. And so Avram says, well, which son are we talking about? Are we talking about Ishmael? Or are we talking about Yitzchak? Um, and just for those who are paying attention to the uncircumcised or the circumcised, right? this is a kind of um, you know, continuing rabbinic terminology that all people who are not Jewish are referred to as uncircumcised, regardless of whether they're circumcised. Right? Yishmael, we know for a fact, is circumcised. Um, and we know that his descendants also circumcised. But it's just a kind of... Uh, pejorative term that's not actually connected to a person's um, genitals. <laughs> okay, so so what, what I'm suggesting, right, is that we imagine that when Abraham hears, take your son, he thinks that it might be positive. Okay, and he thinks maybe God is asking me to bring back Yishmael. But then when God says your only son, Right? Then it starts to seem like, oh, we're talking about Yitzchak. But Abraham is still not willing. And Abraham says, yeah, but I have two only sons. M maybe you're talking about Yishmael. And then God says that you love. And Abraham says, I love them both. And then God says Yitzchak. Okay? And once God clarifies 
that he is referring to Yitzchak, kach, take, can refer to retrieving a lost son. It has to refer to taking a son and doing something with the son. And you could sort of see, feel the kind of dread, like the moment of dread when Avraham realizes after resisting, but then not only is this not good news, this is terrible, devastating news. And the last thing that I wanna say is that to me, this comparison between Yishmael and Yitzchak answers my own question of how could Avraham do this? And I think that the answer is, and like it pains me to say it, is that it's easier for Avraham to sacrifice Yitzchak because he already sacrificed Yishmael. His heart was already kind of torn open and he already got used to the pain. And when God says, I want you to do it again, Avram just goes, fine, right? He doesn't have the emotional resources. He doesn't really have it in him to get so upset because there's like a little bit of an emotional death there. He's already a little bit numb inside because he's already had to lose Ishmael and is finally getting to this moment where he understands that God is never going to tell him um, to bring Ishmael back. Um, okay, so what we've done here, right, is we've seen, I think, some shot analysis of the comparison between Ishmael and Yitzchak in the text. Then we saw a little bit of the Midrash. Um, and then we also saw a little bit um, of the Midrash on the Midrash, where I think that we can use um, our own reading of this Midrash to kind of take us in a different, slightly different direction that will enable us to respond to, uh, at least provide you know, one response um, to the question, the emotional question um, of what happened to Avraham, right? How was he able emotionally um, to, to sacrifice Yitzchak? That was a tremendous amount of material and also just, I think, you know, somewhat of an emotional bait and switch. I hope that it gave you some sense of the stories here and how, and how to read the stories with each other and also to kind of choose um, to take an emotional approach, right, towards reading the text and not always view it through a, through a moral or theological lens. This episode of Tashma was produced by Jeremy Tabak and Sam Greenberg and edited by Evan Feist. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It has been a pleasure to learn with you. <laughs>